The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A new podcast on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from Left Turn. Hosts Christo Avalis and Andy Borkowski discuss how Israel commands the unquestioned support of the vast majority of the Canadian political and media establishment. However, there is some cause for optimism as some cracks are starting to show. And that's just one show. There's a ton of amazing content on Harbinger, and I can't say enough how much of a fantastic project it is. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territories, on the bank of the Kasiskisawanesipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today, and I'm very pleased to have him on the pod, not only is he uh, the inventor of the thing that we are going to be discussing today, but he is also the co-host of the socialist movie podcast, Michael and Us, as well as a staff writer at Jacobin. Luke Savage, welcome. Welcome to the the Progress Report. Thanks for having me, Duncan. It's uh, great to be here. So this is the small talk question for you know the next few months. Obviously, uh, have you gotten vaccinated yet? Yes, uh, this weekend, this Saturday, uh, basically by chance. As you know, um, it's been absolutely chaotic the rollout uh, over here, and I'm sure. Uh, where where you are as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's just, it would be today or tomorrow or this week that I would have, you know, I was supposed to officially be able to uh, book an appointment giving my, give my age and postal code. But um, there was a random tip about uh, a pop-up clinic in Etobicoke. So, you know, West, <laughs> West Toronto. Um, so I went to some kind of- Ford country too. Yeah, <laughs> Ford country uh, thing was, I think, put in, put in place on you know, Friday was gone by Monday. I, I got there on Saturday and um, uh, it was very, uh, very efficiently run. I waited in line for about 30 or 40 minutes. And uh, then, you know, afterwards they make you wait for 15 minutes to make sure that, I don't know, your eyes don't explode or, or whatever is supposed to happen. Um, but uh, there's, nothing... no, there's no scanners type situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, nothing in any of, not, none of the warnings in Joe Warmington's various uh, Toronto Sun columns about what would happen came to uh came to fruition. So I, I left after 15 minutes and, um, yeah, I'm feeling fine. It was just, um, the, the worst, uh, the worst side effect was a uh, very severe pain in my shoulder where I had the uh, injection, but besides that, all good. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. And I love hearing uh, people's uh, vaccination stories. I got mine. It'll be two weeks on Thursday. So I am almost, you know, I'm a few days away from having some level of protection, uh, you know, 50% of the way to being 50% of the way or whatever. Well, I suppose we're, we're reaching, we're at this, like, uh, we're, we're at a crucial point now where the, we're at a critical point where the, uh, vaccination stories are probably like enough people are probably getting vaccinated now that like, we're, there's already starting to be an ebb in how interesting the stories are. It's like a week ago, if I heard someone was vaccinated, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Tell me how it happened. And then like over the next few weeks, it's just like 
everyone's vaccination selfie, like they're just, you know, they're all just becoming, it's like the voting selfie now, or it's, it's going to be more and more like that from now on. It's just washing over you. You're not even registering it. Well, it's good. I mean, it's fucking how it should be. Everyone go get vaccinated, folks. I mean, this isn't a PSA for vaccinations, but uh, but still, if you haven't yet, go fucking do it. It's not it's not hard, especially in Alberta. But we didn't bring you on today to talk vaccination small talk, Luke. We brought you on to discuss and dissect uh, a term that you invented and popularized. Uh, though I feel I hear uh, from our in our pre-interview, you said that that some guy maybe said it on Twitter like a few months before you you brought it up. But the the term uh, that I'm talking about today is of course maple washing. And for the folks at home, why don't you give your kind of like pricey of what uh, the hell maple washing is and why it is uh, so annoying. Sure. Well, um, yeah. So the the term, uh, I mean, there was somebody who tweeted it before me. I believe he's a, a Toronto based uh, lawyer, but um, it was uh, was something that came to mind for me. And I, I should say, I did I didn't see his tweet, so I wasn't stealing the the term. Um, <laughs> good, good. Uh, great minds think alike, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, you know, it was in it was in 2016. The you know, I was thinking a lot about um, the kind of uh, issues related to this because of um, you know, I think the way that the, among other things, the you know the way that the Trudeau uh, premiership, which was still pretty new at that point, and also the way the uh, American election, the way both of those things were being sort of discussed um, in Canada, and and in the case of um, of Trudeau, the way he was being discussed abroad as well. I mean, so basically, the the shortest uh, you know definition, the most concise kind of summary of the term would be that um, you know maple washing refers to um, a a kind of ambient cultural impulse we have in Canada, one that is, uh, you know, reflected in, in many of our institutions and, you know, in our media and to some extent in our, in our governments as well, um, that elevates a sort of, um, you know, twee innocent uh, version of what Canada is um, and contrasts it with sort of, you know, particularly the, you know, uh, uh, you know, horrendous, you know, particular horrendous scenes we might see in somewhere like the United States, for example. So it's, it's a particular, it's our own particular version of cultural exceptionalism, which is unique to Canada. And I think quite unlike the types of cultural exceptionalism um, that you see in a society like the United States, which is, you know, kind of an imperial society, um, or even in, you know, uh, for, I don't know, for example, countries in Europe that, you know, are, uh, are much older, uh, you know, have a much older sense of kind of nationhood or, or whatever. Um, so that, that would be a kind of, um, uh, a short, a, short, a brief summary of it. Yeah. It's like essentially, you know, Canada writ large believes that it is morally superior to everyone else. And so because we are morally superior, all of the, you know, uh, genocide and land theft and you know really the throne of blood that that canadian society sits on is just kind of like hand waved away as like it, it either never really happened or it wasn't as bad as you think it is kind of thing right that's right um i mean there's an idea of canada which is one that i mean i was certainly served in you know uh, public school an idea that canada is a sort of um i don't know a sort of multiracial switzerland with a basically Scandinavian welfare state attached to it, you know? Um, and insofar as, you know, there have been, uh, you know, these things that you mentioned insofar as Canada, you know, was a colonial society or, you know, was not a pluralist society or was not an egalitarian society, whatever, you know, that's, that's practically, you know, mythic. That's ancient history at this point. 
So since the 1960s, at least, or, you know, that's the, that's the idea, um, you know, Canada is this, you know, became a, a, a multicultural, multiracial, bilingual society, multilateral in terms of its, you know, foreign policy, a kind of honest broker on the international stage, um, and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people are so steeped in this stuff, I probably don't need to kind of, um, you know, lay, lay it out too much. I think you all, uh, you all know what I mean. Um, but, you know, I think uh, we could see in the wake of the, you know, Trudeau election, um, you know, just how, uh, you know, just how easy it is for this kind of sentiment to lead people astray when they're thinking about uh, both things that happen in other countries, um, but also, um, you know, things that are happening, things that are happening here. Um, things can be sanitized or maple washed very, very easily. And the, you know, uh, the, the, the worst features of Canadian society can be obscured by that. So that was, uh, that wasn't is something that uh, concerns me. No, I mean, and this term has, you know, it has its own Wikipedia entry now. It, like you have gone on to American podcasts and kind of explained this to Americans. And I think uh, when you kind of do that and you, you talk to kind of these American socialist types, they, they like, they understand, they get it in, in as much as they ever think about Canada. I mean, that, that has kind of been our very effective kind of like branding tool, but you know, it is an extremely tedious habit that, you know, particularly federal liberals, but I mean, again, you're right. It's, it's totally like ambient and kind of baked into Canada writ large that, that this tactic is kind of deployed at will right and 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 to highlight it after you know justin trudeau won the election and was saying canada's back and there were these like rolling stone profiles on how awesome jt was it it needed to be said it was also that was 2016 was also what canada 150 or something right it was like it was or we were coming up on canada 150 i can't remember the exact timing but it was like yeah i think canada 150 was that was 2017 but yeah we were coming we were coming up on it and and there was I mean, there was a sense of kind of cultural triumphalism, I think, unlike anything in my lifetime. Um, and, and I mean, here we really have to, you know, the relationship, sort of cultural and political relationship Canada has with the United States is absolutely crucial to understanding this. Um, because, you know, this phenomenon is, I mean, we, we, we Canada, Canadians, we are to blame for this phenomenon. But um, the fact is, a lot of it uh, has to do with things that happen elsewhere. You mentioned the Rolling Stone cover with Justin Trudeau on it. Now, um, you know, that was covered in Canada by the Canadian media, right? Like, <laughs> like the, our prime minister being on the cover of like another country, in this case, the United States, you know, the, one of their, you know, this kind of iconic publication, um, you know, the kind of publication where you see, you know, ugh, I don't know, U2 or, or whatever, um, you know, like that was, that was treated as a news, a news event in and of itself, which, you know, I think... Uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, other countries leaders uh, being on the cover of, you know, American newspapers or magazines, perhaps that would be a story um, in, in other countries. But I think here it was a story in a particular kind, kind of way, so much so that, in fact, I think a lot of people missed any, you know, some of the things Justin Trudeau uh, said in his actual interviews. So There's a very strange line in that interview about his boxing match with Patrick Brazo and um, how, you know, uh, they made this, you know, Trudeau like cut his ponytail off after or something. And Trudeau says some very weird stuff about how like, uh, oh yeah, I thought it sent the right, you know, the right message or something. Um, you know, in incredibly, uh, incredibly strange stuff, but you know, people, uh, people miss this because the point is just that, oh, look, our prime minister's on the cover of, uh, 
is, is on the cover of Rolling Stone. And so it's important to emphasize here that there is there is a you know there is it, 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 we are talking about cultural exceptionalism, but um, part of Canadian cultural exceptionalism, and this is a bit of the paradox here, is a sort of deep insecurity because we are not the United States. You know, we are not um, you know this. Uh, this big imperial society, um, and we are, you know, we are deeply influenced. You know, we're seeped in American culture. A lot of Canadians probably know more about U.S. politics than they know about Canadian politics, um, and so there's also a sense in something like that that's like, you know, hey, look, we made it. Um, which I think, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we should not be particularly impressed that like Justin Trudeau was on the cover of, <laughs> of Rolling Stone. Who cares, right? Um, but you know, this, this is a, this is a feature of Canada and it's especially a feature of Canada, um, in the sort of early Trudeau era where, um, I think often Canadians were forming their impressions of their own government and their own prime minister based on things that they were reading, um, in, you know, the foreign press, they were reading American news. Uh, they're reading like the New York times talking about like, you know, the Canadian, you know, we're living in the age of the Canadian cool or whatever, or Trudeau would go and give a speech to a bunch of world leaders in Hamburg, um, you know, where he'd say a bunch of pablum about how, you know, we have to do something about inequality or whatever. And that would be covered in Canada, um, you know, as, uh, you know, like, look at our, look at our globe trotting prime minister, you know, setting the agenda on the, on the world stage or, or whatever, um, often to the exclusion of, you know, um, how Trudeau was actually governing, um, which, you know, as I uh, never tired of pointing out at the time and still don't tire pointing out, you know, has not been radical in any kind of sense. I mean, even by the standards of the fairly conservative standards of the 2015 liberal platform, I mean, they haven't even met kind of that baseline. And yet even by the standards, even by the standards set by like his own father and like the liberal party of the late 60s and 70s. Oh yeah, I mean the the Liberal Party today does not have you know I mean there I mean there there aren't sort of even basic you know basic social democratic commitments or anything like that um, or you know uh, or com, you know commitments to the, the kinds of um, multilateral is uh, multilateralism that that Pierre Trudeau engaged uh, engaged in uh, from time to time. There's not there's none of that. Um, you know the the Trudeau government is. Um, you know, it rode a wave of sort of anti-Harper sentiment to victory. And because it sort of said a bunch of the right things, um, you know, it, uh, it, it had this reputation. Um, and again, the, actually, I remember um, further to what I was saying before, you know, uh, I think a lot of Canadians read about the Trudeau victory in, uh, you know, American and, and um, you know, British press uh, as well in like foreign English language press. I remember a piece in uh, The Independent uh, after the 2015 election, uh, that was arguing that Justin Trudeau was going to pursue, uh, the most ambi- I think it, the phrase was like the most ambitious liberal premiership in decades or something like that. And the evidence for the, uh, the evidence for this was, um, as the piece in a, in a, I think since changed headlines suggested, um, Trudeau was going to give every Canadian a basic income, which of course, you know, didn't happen. <laughs> Um, you know, the actual story was the liberals uh, embraced some kind of like small pilot program in a town in southern Ontario or eastern Ontario or, or something like that. Um, in the American press, there were lots of comparisons to, uh, between Trudeau and Bernie Sanders. Um, I mean, it, it, it was uh, it was total hyperbole. And I think in a in a in a less um, or in a more self-confident uh, culture than ours, 
people might be sort of equipped to resist that. You know, Canadians might be like, okay, well, come on. It's not, this is, you know, this is exaggeration. Um, but because we're so, uh, you know, we're so preoccupied as a culture with sort of um, getting attention uh, abroad and we love it when our celebrities and our politicians uh, receive adulation abroad, you know, none, none of that happened. And, and people ended up with a very different perception by and large, I think, of the cultural moment um, sort of from 2015 um, to some extent right up to the present. But, you know, in the, the Trump era, especially people ended up with a very a, a serious misperception of what that moment was and what was going on in it. And I think uh, this phenomenon of maple washing is really at the root of that. Yes. And and Luke, before coming out of this pod, I did give you some homework. Uh, and, and, you know, I also did a bit of research for this pod as well. And, and one of that, one of those things that I asked you to do was to come up with, you know, your top three examples of kind of maple washing in action. And as I was kind of doing the research for this, there was something that I just kept coming back to that is kind of like inescapable and that uh, really is kind of like, as sad as it is kind of like a foundational way that Canadians like learn about their own history. And that is heritage minutes. (laughs) You're a, you're a little, you're a little younger than me, but you mean you remember heritage minutes? Like I was watching like Simpsons reruns and fresh Prince reruns and jeopardy and stuff. And so these heritage minutes were on kind of all the time. Sure. Because the the Simpsons used to be on the CBC. I used to watch it. I think at five o'clock every night. And yeah, of course you'd see the heritage minutes too. Exactly right, and these these heritage minutes are like I think a key part of Canadian myth building, like within Canada, and really I think one of the like key things that like helps us kind of forget or that encourages kind of like racial amnesia and like genocide amnesia. Um, you know, uh, one way that I think we could kind of just dive right into this is. Uh, one of the, one of the, probably the most memorable ones, and that is the Canadian Heritage Minute on the Underground Railway. And I actually have the audio for that right here. So I'm just going to play that. Pa should have been here by now. He's three hours late already. Pa ain't gonna make it! One of them slave catchers gone. Someone's helping. I just know I said you both made it past the border yesterday. We've all done this before. He's our father. He'll be here. Come. Let's pray. No more praying. Liza! Liza! Between 1840 and 1860, more than 30,000 American slaves came secretly to Canada and freedom. They called it the Underground Railroad. So there's there's the Underground Railroad Heritage Minute. I mean, it... I mean, God bless the actors. They're really fucking selling it there. <laughs> and the music, the score for that is also uh, incredibly dramatic, right? And the overwhelming kind of feeling of this is that, like, Canada was one of the good guys, you know, when it came to slavery. But, like, there were slaves in Canada. <laughs> Canada is an incredibly racist nation. Uh, you know, Canada was not behind the abolishment of 
slavery that eventually happened in the British Empire. And I'm pretty positive that there were Canadian slave owners that got paid out uh, when you know Britain eventually abolished slavery. And it's also worth pointing out that when Britain abolished slavery, it wasn't uh, you know they didn't just do it; uh, they actually paid out the the slave owning families and slaveholders. Uh, a considerable amount of money that I think only recently got paid off, like within the last 20 years, like they took out a loan and that loan only kind of finally got paid off. Um, it's funny. I don't remember that, uh, that particular one, or I don't, I don't remember it very well. Uh, if I do, there's, there's a few unaired ones. I don't know if you have any of those queued up, but there's one on peacekeeping. That's very funny. Do you remember that one? Oh my God. No. What's the peacekeeping one? It's like, it's like, uh, it's like supposed to be a Canadian peacekeeper intervening in, in Cyprus, you know, in the interests of peace, but it's like, it's basically like he's just breaking up like some kind of like, uh, what, what appears to be like a family dispute. Uh, it's, I, I don't know how kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, uh, on Cyprus, but, um, what I remember about it is just how kind of unbelievably like twee and provincial uh, it, it seems and kind of cringy, which is my memory of uh, of most of these things. What what are what are the other ones you've got? Oh, don't you worry. So um, the second one I have is of Sitting Bull. And it's, a sh- I mean, you can go and watch these, of course. And if you remember them, you remember them. But a very famous actor uh, plays Sitting Bull in this one. And, and uh, you know, this... Again, just an incredible example of maple watching. Maple washing. Commissioner McLeod, where are the rest of your men? You've got more men back there than I have in the whole of Western Canada. Yeah, but Sitting Bull held a war dance last night. General Terry, in Canada, Sitting Bull has kept the Queen's peace. He's agreed to meet with you. And spotted eagle. That face doesn't look ready to come back to the States without a fight. Uh- President Hayes says you will be received kindly. The Grandmother's Medicine House is no place for lies. Not two more words. This country does not belong to you. We will stay here and keep the Grandmother's peace. She will let us raise our children. We do not want lies. These men, Walsh, McLeod, they're the first white men who never lied to us. I didn't know then that they'd be starved out of Canada and go back to the States. Walsh would resign over it. Sitting bull would be murdered. Canada, the good guys when it comes to indigenous people, somehow. <laughs> like, I, I don't oh, know how boy. you can listen, listen to that and not come away with it being like, yeah, like, you know, they were treated poorly, but at least Canada didn't treat them as poorly as the United States. Like, really, the kind of classic maple washing narrative, right? Where we compare ourselves to the United States. But this, of course, obviously like misrepresents what happens right like the fucking rich protestant families in central canada were scared shitless of sitting bull and of like indian revolt in general and they didn't have an army back then they all they had was this northwest mounted police and so this diplomacy that they used with sitting bull was simply because they didn't have the resources to wage the war of extermination that they wanted to wage and then did, Canada did, ended did up. The Her- did the heritage minutes? I mean, do they ever like? I mean, this is partly a rhetorical question. I think I know the answer, but I mean, do they ever <laughs> like, like, did, did the heritage minutes ever engage in like, like bearing witness to actual like 
I mean, are they are they always just like celebrating moments in Canadian history? Like, is there a Heritage Minute about residential schools, for example? Uh, there's o- there's only one way to find out. Uh, my computer keyboard is pretty broken, but uh, Heritage Minutes Canada uh, residential schools. <laughs> Let's see what comes up. I mean, there might be one or two, but uh, New Heritage Minute explores dark history of residential schools. Right, there so new one, new one, right. Yeah, so like, it's this like is four, recent... four years ago. Yeah. Right, right. But, but I mean, they, they, they also mention it at the end of that Heritage Minute too, like what eventually happened to Sitting Bull as well as hundreds of thousands of others, indigenous, hundreds and thousands of other indigenous people on the plains, which is that Canada starved them out. And Canada starved, starvation was like official government policy. Uh which was and it was essentially how the West was colonized with as little kind of trouble as like you know by trouble I mean like um, white people getting murdered as possible right and you know this is all covered much better and by you know book clearing the plains by James Daschuk and uh, Howard Adams's Prisoners of Grass or Prisons of Grass but like this is one of Canada's like greatest shames is like what we did to the indigenous people on the plains via starvation. And it's just kind of like, Oh yeah, they use starvation to starve out sitting bull. Like they, you know, like this passive voice (laughs) as if like the Northwest mounted police weren't intrinsic to the strategy of doing it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that actually, you know, in, in, um, I wrote an essay, I guess in 2017, kind of trying to lay out, um, you know, I first talked about maple washing in the CBC radio essay. And then in 2017, I wrote kind of a longer essay kind of getting at the historical um, sources of it. And I, I think that um, I think that one of the kind of uh, one of the sources of or one of the explanations for for something like what you just described is the fact that, like, to some extent, the, I mean, the, mo- the modern idea of Canada is really a creation of the 1960s. Right. Like it was a conscious uh, project of kind of um, state building and and nation building, like building a new national imaginary. Like that's what you and I were taught. Um, we, we were taught on the basis of that um, when we studied in public school. Um, and, you know, um, that that's not to say that like uh, the passive voice made, made sense there. Obviously, you know, it's the same, it's the same state, it's the same crown, um, you know, but uh, you know, I think a lot of people's, uh, you know, our, our kind of collective historical memory often sort of almost mythologizes rather than historicizes sort of what what came before, like, you know, Expo 67 or whatever. Um, and you can see that's uh, stuff like what we just uh, what, you, what you just played is the result. Yeah. And this isn't I mean, this isn't the only kind of really bad one when it comes to um you know, maple washing Canada's history of, of genocide and relation and its relationship, historical relationship with the indigenous people. But one of the most hilarious fucking heritage minutes is the, the one of gray owl. And I had to kind of give you a bit of a, of a pricey on who gray owl was when we were ch- chatting originally, but I just discovered something while I was on the podcast now. Okay. So, so just to set the scene, uh, gray owl is uh, this like essentially um, Englishman who came to North America and like turned into, turned himself into like a pretend Indian said he had an Apache mother, wrote a bunch of famous books and this uh, here's, here's the heritage minute. And then, then I'll get into why it's even more hilarious in a second. The world's most famous Canadian gray owl just back from a triumphant British tour is to be a reluctant guest at a gathering of first nations. Archie, you may not realize this, but right now you are the most famous Red Indian in the world. These are your people. You have to be there. 
Come on, Harry. Let's go. Sure, I'm sure. His name is Archie Bellini. And if he's a Red Indian, I'm the King of China. It is an honor to meet the man called Grey Owl, who has brought much respect for our people. Imposter, rascal, dreamer. <laughs> and yet the Englishman who called himself Grey Owl <laughs> awoke the whole world to our vanishing wilderness. My brother says, men become what they dream. You have dreamed well. So you can become an, an Indian if you uh, dream that you're one, I guess. I'm not familiar with that story at all. Again, this is, I feel like you come from a different generation of heritage minutes because I don't, uh, I don't remember that one either. You know, it's funny, all the ones that I remember, I think I said this to you when we were talking yesterday, um, are like, you know, these ones that are just like very twee and are trying to claim like various like, things for Canada in like the most dubious ways. So like there's the one where I guess the guy, is he going off to war and he draws Superman and then he gives a picture of Superman to his girlfriend <laughs> yes, yes. and he says like, you know, hold on to this. It might be worth something someday. And I guess it's like the implication is like Superman was they're like uh, Superman's Superman's, really Canadian. Superman's likeness was once drawn in Canada by the guy who created him or something. Or there's a very similar one with Winnie the Pooh where it's like the bear that inspired Winnie the Pooh was at a zoo in Winnipeg or something. Um, and, and like a young Christopher Robin saw him somehow possibly not even went like, I don't know if Christopher Robin even saw the bear in Canada. The bear might've later <laughs> yeah. been in Canada after meeting Christopher Robin. I don't know. But then again, it's like, so Canada claims Winnie the Pooh. And it's like, I mean, we did also give the world Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Like surely we can do better than this. Yeah, to come back to the gray owl one. So this, there's, there might be a crossover here with uh, Michael and us because gray owl. So the, I think what happens here. So, so Pierce Brosnan is gray owl in this, uh, in this heritage minute, but he doesn't have a single line or say a single word. He just kind of like appears and people are talking to him. Right. But here's the thing. I just discovered this now. This is totally memory hold for me. There was a 1999 film called gray owl directed by Richard Attenborough and then starring Pierce Brosnan as gray owl. So the very likely the images for this were just stolen or used from that movie. And, uh, like the hilarious, like the first thing that comes up in this movie is, um, that, like in the Wikipedia entry that comes up when you just search on Google is budget $30 million box office, $632,617. Oh man. And this is, this is while Brosnan is like known, you know, fairly this exclusively is, this is, as James Bond. This is Bond era Brosnan. Bond era Brosnan peak Q rating Brosnan. It has a 17% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It is, <laughs> I think you kind of have to watch it for your uh, eventually on your mo socialist movie podcast now because <laughs> this movie is totally vanished from my brain. I had no recollection that this thing ever existed. Oh, the art, it sounds like the kind of project that like I, I wouldn't be surprised if like it turned out Steven Seagal wrote the screenplay or something. <laughs>
yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. Uh, but but to come back to the like the okay, so Grey Owl, whatever was this famous English guy pretended to be an Indian, and they made a heritage myth about it. But like the whole idea of like white people appropriating indigenousness is like incredibly common and happening more and more and more these days. Like Eastern Métis, you know, not a thing, or like uh, the whole Michelle Latimer story. Like this is an extremely common trope, and it's not something that should be celebrated. It needs to be like stopped and called out because like you know pierce brosnan <laughs> slash gray owl was was got famous and made a bunch of money out of pretending to be an indian like it's hard I, from this heritage minute and from my surface level understanding of this character it's really hard to understand i don't really see how he helped indigenous people in any way you know what i mean <laughs> right right uh okay so we've got some other heritage minutes lined up we're kind of moving into like borders and immigration now and this this next one uh, is both incredibly famous, burned in my memory, and the end really just kind of like gives the game away, especially when it just kind of comes to Canada. All right, who wants to earn some danger pay? Boat fare for the wipe. All you have to do is go down in the tunnel with the nitro and set the charge. And my wife, you pay boat? Okay, okay, I, I do, I do really good, you see. Now, pour it in the hole gently, understand? Any little bump in that stuff will blow. Damn it, that's the third one we lost this month. Cochran, get another volunteer. I went back in again, but I lost many friends. They say there is one dead Chinese man for every mile of that track that's what they say okay <laughs> so yeah so i mean here's you know at the end uh, you can't see it obviously but like he's talking to his grandchildren as an old man and he's he's just telling them that yeah like the, the the thing that this country was built on the transcontinental railroad railroad was built on the the dead bodies of chinese labor laborers like how many miles are there in the track Thousands. I, I mean, so that one though. I mean, I mean, I like. I haven't actually seen that one. I don't think. But I mean, is that not trying to uh, point out exactly that? Is that not trying to sort of a little bear bit, witness a little bit. To, to that? You I mean you can? It looks. It makes it look like it's like oh, he's just doing what he had to do. I mean, maybe they're kind of accepting it a little bit, but it is still. Uh, he's still like telling his grandchildren in a way that's like not that this was bad just that it that it happened and that it's sad right right that it was like you you think the implication is that it was some kind of like sacrifice that was made or whatever yeah as opposed this is to the price right. we pay for like me being here and for canada right. existing you know what i mean right and, and it's even kind of obliquely mentioned like he wouldn't just have been paying for his wife to come over uh he would have had his wife would have had to have paid the, the chinese head tax which would have been in, in place at the time right mm-hmm. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a funny one. The last heritage minute that we have to discuss is features uh, one of Canada's greatest villains and really kind of one of the like proto um, kind of examples of one of Canada's um, exports, most popular kind of recent exports, which is like racist white nationalist YouTubers. Yes. Before, before that we had Emily Murphy and uh 
you know, we learn about Emily Murphy and social studies. I think they used to be on the $50 bill or something. They used to be on some of our money in Edmonton. The famous five shit is fucking everywhere where I live. There's a statue of this person in my town. Uh, and she was incredibly vile. Uh, like even by the standards of 1910s, 1920s, Canada, she was an incredibly racist and white supremacist person. And it was reflected in her writings, but let's, uh, let's listen to the, the final heritage minute and we'll get into it. But the Supreme Court of Canada agreed, you see. I could not become a senator because under the British North America Act, as a woman, I was not a person. I, Emily Murphy, author of the Janie Canuck books, pioneer in the war against narcotics, first female magistrate in the empire, but not a person. So we took it all the way to London. A group of Canadian women laboring ten long years against ridicule. Husbands saying, there, there, dear. Until those noble lords of the Privy Council agreed in 1929. I, Emily Murphy of Alberta, and all Canadian women after me. Persons under the law. So we could sit in the Senate after all. Was the end of that uh, so we could sit in the Senate after all? <laughs> yes, that's the that's big a, that's win. A, that's a nice little, That's uh, I love that as a, uh, it's the, a nice little cherry on top at the end. So yeah, I don't know, yeah. I'm not, a, I don't know a huge amount about Emily Murphy, but um, I do understand she was involved in, uh, you know, she uh, had some involvement in kind of the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. And, um, uh, you know, she was uh, a, you know, she was a kind of a, I mean, I guess they didn't use the phrase white nationalism at the time, but that's, uh, that was kind of the crux of it. Yeah. I mean, the, the line of, you know, Canadian, all Canadian women were, were persons is just a false, patently untrue, right? Like indigenous women were not considered persons, uh, by this ruling and were not even able to vote until the fifties. Uh, Emily Murphy sure as shit did not give whether black women or Asian women, or indigenous women were persons and was in fact uh, incredibly aggressive to any type of uh, liberatory politics or politics where those people were considered anything less than kind of degenerate scum who were kind of, uh, you know, uh, what, what were they doing? They were uh, unpure. They were sullying the bloodline of, you know, the great Canadian Northmen, right? Like the language that she used is like incredibly racist for its time which says a lot for, you know, 1910, 1920s Canada. And she had an incredible platform, right? Like she was a regular columnist in Maclean's. Her Janie Canuck books were popular, not a, not just across Canada, but but worldwide. And she it was these like incredibly lurid, uh, you know, made up descriptions of like drug use and of like this very QAnon like conspiracy called the, the ring, which was like kidnapping white women into sex slavery and stuff. And uh, anyways, I, I really hate Emily Murphy and more people should hate her because she's fucking awful. And I, that's really just the, one of the big reasons why I wanted to bring that heritage minute onto the podcast. Okay. Let's, let's close up our convo on, on heritage minutes. Is there any final thoughts on the matter? Uh, of these kind of little propaganda minutes before we turn into other more recent examples of maple washing. Well, it's hardly as weighty as anything we've been discussing, but I think it was yesterday that you informed me that the 
the uh, the peach basket that James Nays- Naismith used um, to uh, you know as the first basketball net or whatever. The peach basket wasn't even Canadian. The peach basket was in the United States, and he spent most of his time in America. Is that right? Yeah, he's a Canadian American. He was at the University of Kansas for most of his kind of like adult <laughs> life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and like, where does basketball, where is basketball the most popular and like, who gives the most shits about basketball? Not Canadians, right? <laughs> Isn't our national sport technically lacrosse? Lacrosse, the summer sport. Yes. Lacrosse right. and right. winter sport. I think that's how they get around it. But yeah. Right. Right. But I can't have you on and I, and I am obliged to, to talk about the Alberta angle, uh, when it comes to Maple Washington, we have this very interesting kind of recent mutation of maple washing, which was kind of uh, created and really popularized, uh, not by liberals, but by conservatives. And this is the whole like ethical oil angle, right? It's really my home province's greatest contribution to the maple washing discourse. And, you know, created by Ezra Levant, since been propagated by, you know, the oil and gas industry and its lobby groups and really and all Albertan governments of all stripes at all levels. Uh, you know, the idea that Canada's oil is this pure ethical construct that, you know, isn't built on genocide, racism, the degradation, exploitation of workers for rich oligarchs. You know, it, it takes the novel approach not of comparing us uh, to the United States, which would most want maple washing does, but instead, you know, to Saudi, to Saudi Arabia, to Russia, to Nigeria and other kind of foreign bad places that we don't like, you know, that we have, but we, of course, are obviously happy to trade with. And there, I think, no single better distillation of the ethical oil mindset than uh, this 2016 image macro that went uh, became a news story and and uh, and I don't know if you saw this when it came out Luke I think you did but why don't you you tell the people what the hell it is I'm talking about well so I, I don't have it in front of me but this is the one oh, of okay. the of the two women kissing and it's like you know, this can happen here at, at the point of extraction and it can't in Saudi Arabia. Um, oh, yeah, yes. no, here, here, here it is. So uh, colloquially referred to as the hot lesbians ad in Canada, lesbians are considered hot in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, if you're a lesbian, you die. So this was uh, from the Canada oil sands community um, it says choose equality, choose Canadian oil. Um, I mean, especially ironic frame for like albertan conservatives to adopt for like oil like albertan conservatives who as we all know are famous for like their upstanding record on like issues surrounding lgbtq rights yes yes and uh, like your brain just melts when you see this because yeah like just the the most blatant appropriation of kind of like uh the dumbest kind of like pro lgbtq take possible (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is, and and this this ad uh, was created by a, a guy named Robbie Picard, who started this kind of like pro oil sands like ethical oil maple washing group. I think it's called Oil Sand Strong these days. It's gone through a number of iterations. He once actually uh, zip tied himself to my the building that my co working space is in. Uh, he once zip tied himself to the door um, on like a four p.m. on a Friday afternoon and videotaped himself doing this because. Uh, I think he believed that Greenpeace had their office here. I think maybe Greenpeace had their offices here for some time, but like that no one from Greenpeace was there. They, were, they like, used it as storage. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy who, you know, does stunts like that creates this hot lesbian ad uh, was like literally on the stage introducing uh, the fact that our, our government was going to launch 
an, an inquiry into, you know, anti-energy, anti-Alberta activities. And uh, <laughs> like literally on stage with the premier and the energy minister announcing that this thing was going to happen. And uh, just, just Alberta politics are just in fucking credible, right? Like, like this inquiry, I don't know how close you've been keeping track of it, but it is, it is currently going on its like third extension. The, the deadline for its uh, final report that's supposed to be due at the like end of the month, which is what it's we're recording this on May 18th. So we're 13 days away, less than two weeks away from the end of the month where this thing is supposed to come in. I'm, he's on, got the, a, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> he's got three extensions. He's got an extra million dollars in, in, in budget for this thing to, to really kind of go and, and, you know, excavate this uh, conspiracy theory, right. That, that there is this transnational, group of rich uh million american millionaires who stand to benefit somehow from funding you know environmental groups in right. canada so f- to stop pipelines flying, flying very close to sort of george soros stuff and then you know close as well to you know the the next stage of that which is even uglier exactly yes very much so and so this the, the, like this is the ethical oil stuff is is again baked into the kind of atmosphere here in Alberta, but it is again the the stupidest and kind of most useless kind of PR uh, strategy that you can concoct because like it only works on the people that it like works on. You know what I mean? Like if you're a conservative and you've heard this ethical oil frame for the past five years, you think it's great. And if you're like if you think that we eventually have to transition to a new sort of economy, like you don't give a shit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Like, I mean, I, I actually wrote about, um, you know, I wrote about, uh, Alberta and sort of oil sands identity politics, uh, myself a few weeks ago. And I used to write a lot about it when I was at, uh, press progress. And, you know, I got to know these various characters, guys like Derek Fildebrandt, what are he's up to these days? Um, Actually, he's got his own. You uh, can tell me what Derek Fildebrand is up to these days. He's he's got his own uh, independent media shop. He's revived the Western Standard, which was Ezra Levant's old magazine that was famous uh, for reprinting like cartoons of Muhammad. Uh, he's, so he's a he's a media baron now. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I remember um, some years ago, uh, his he brought or his writing association through him. Um, brought an idea that he had championed since his days at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, some stupid idea where um, like the it, it, it was like some idea. I don't know why he was advancing this like within the confines of Alberta. If I'm rem- remembering correctly, the idea was basically to punish provinces uh, in the form of like like you will lose equalization payments if you don't fully develop your natural resources or whatever. <laughs> this was, this was the idea and it was one that he'd uh, he'd championed for a while, but I mean, that's, that's just like one, one among many examples. And I guess we'll talk about the Bigfoot thing, but like the, the extent to which, you know, the right in Western Canada has turned like oil into like a cultural identity is just extraordinary and it's it's even more extraordinary in light of how the same people i mean this is the re, this is horseshoe theory in action right it's like the same people who have have you know structured much of their politics around like complaining about you know oversensitivity snowflake culture cancel culture the fact that like the state is now as they they argue like tied up in all these things it's like these are the people that 
are creating a government war room to fight like anti oil sands prejudice. You know, it's extraordinary. Yeah, the war room is uh, just, you know, the cousin of the fucking inquiry, right? And it built in the same kind of overheated campaign rhetoric of 2019. And, and it is just as dumb as the inquiry. And and you're right, they did, uh, they did bring up uh, famously recently, this Bigfoot family movie, kind of blowing up the fact that this kind of not very well known Belgian French animated film had a a message in it that was hostile and perhaps untrue about just how good uh, oil and gas development really is for the world. <laughs> and, uh, and there is a bit of maple washing in that movie as well, right? Like there's a, there's a scene where they uh, cross the border into Canada and this like toothy fucking Mountie like salutes them as they like, you know, drive across the border unmolested. And then, you know, they get, they come back to Alaska and the border regime there and it's, you know, it's uh, it's very suspicious. It's dark. The guy has his aviators on, and he's like thoroughly checking them out. Uh, you know, our border regime is just as as violent and as brutal as uh, as the Americans' uh, border regime is. Um, you know, we just have a, a press that's probably a little less interested and a little not as good, quite frankly, as kind of digging up the stories of like kids in cages uh, that happen here. Like, there's like some twenty. 17 or there was some 2017 2018 story by the cbc that was like oh yeah there's like 117 kids in in like people under 18 in in indefinite immigration detention in canada and like probably around the time that those photos went viral of i guess it was um border services or rcmp like greeting asylum seekers at the border or whatever um and it's like those people were you know definitely or almost certainly just taken to like a detention facility like right after Right. Yeah, they were arrested and thrown yeah, into a I mean, into a prison cell. <laughs> but that, but that you know that went viral just in the same way that you know Justin Trudeau's tweet, uh, you know after uh, there was the Muslim ban, uh, right at the start of the Trump presidency, Justin Trudeau had that tweet where he said, you know, all are welcome in Canada or whatever. I can't quite remember how he uh, how he phrased it. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, like you know, actually, you know what? Let me just find it. I've got it here. Um, hang on. Um, it is a hilarious example of like, I'm just going to say a thing because it feels good and it's in the news right now. And then it was like, oh, yeah, like we're, I'm not going to follow through on like any of the actual shit I said, which is just kind of classic uh, Justin Trudeau. Right. So he he tweeted to those fleeing persecution, terror and war. Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Welcome to Canada. So that became that was a, another one of these things where that became a huge international news story. Um, but nothing about Canada's refugee policy was actually changed, um, you know, in relation to that. And I think there were there was a higher than uh, a higher number of asylum seekers in the early Trump era, at least. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing about um, nothing about Canada's border policy was changed, and Canadian border uh, officials were collaborating with their American counterparts. Um, so. You know, <laughs> yeah, they didn't re- they didn't rescind the safe third party agreement. You know, like there still was is just as many kids in cages as there was no actual changes. And there, yeah, there was people crossing at like what was the right losing its mind about at the time, like Wrexham Road or like into Manitoba. There were like African and Haitian refugees trying to cross on foot. Anyways, it's yeah, just classic JT though, which is just like tweet a nice thing, send out a nice message but bash bask in the accolades, but don't actually fucking change the material conditions on the ground for the people that you're talking about who are fleeing 
yeah terrible situations i mean this is a, a bit of a digression but i think that trudeau and his people were acutely aware of the fact that uh if they got uh if they went viral like outside of canada if they got you know coverage if they got adulation um outside of canada that would be reported on in canada and so like ergo you know canadians perception of their own government would be refracted through that i think I mean, they they got away with that for years. I mean, I think it wasn't until, uh, you know, it emerged that, you know, I mean, there was the there was the SNC-Lavalin scandal, various other things kind of took the sheen off the Trudeau government. But I mean, you know, then when it emerged that, um, you know, the uh, prime minister had done blackface more times than he was willing to put a number on, I think that's sort of like, you know, they're like, okay, well, we need, we're going to have the consultants told him after that, like, okay, now it's time for you to grow a beard because we need to like create, we need to symbolically distance you from your previous mischievous self, you know, the kind that, uh, you know, the kind that, <laughs> kind that did blackface and sung Deo at a, you know, upscale private school or whatever. Now, you, now you're going to look wise and, and experienced, which I think is kind of what they're going for now. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I said earlier, like, what's my top three of like maple washing, right? Like, I think it's unquestionably heritage minutes. I think ethical oil is number two. And, and, and last, but certainly not least is, you know, something that I, you could probably just smoosh them together. I mean, one is international, one is kind of local, but like the keeping, the peacekeeping kind of myth slash kind of Canadian propaganda, right? Where it's like, as the, as the uh, kind of defund the police narrative and discourse was rolling around Canada, the thing you constantly heard from elected officials and our, you know, chiefs of police and police spokespeople was that it's, oh, it's fine up here. Like the United States is bad, but like, we don't, we don't murder black people wholesale here in Canada. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, black and indigenous people die all the time in police custody. That's just uh, not true. And, um, and, and, and the, like the peacekeeping thing is also just like peacekeeping doesn't exist anymore, like in any real way. Well, and, and even and, insofar as like it does, like we don't do it. I mean, like, you know, yeah, Canada exactly. hasn't been involved in in it in, in a major way for decades. Exactly. Like it's mostly like India, from what I understand, is the like and African countries are the biggest kind of contributors to the peacekeeping program. And and like we have a bunch of examples of peacekeeping just being incredibly ineffectual at like actually stopping tragedies. Like Romeo Dallaire has this entire career about being sad that he wasn't able to do anything to stop the Rwandan genocide, right? And he was a peacekeeper. Yeah, I mean the the whole the whole idea of um, I mean the whole idea of peacekeeping. I mean that's tied, you know, I mean that, that ties very much into my kind of thesis on where the whole maple washing thing comes from, which is that like you know, a, a set of experiences, sort of cultural experiences and political experiences in basically the like 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, you know, it was in that time that, that um, you know, against the backdrop of those experiences that the sort of modern Canadian identity was created. And in a big way, like we still refract everything kind of um, through that. So like Canada still has a reputation that, you know, to some extent has has always been you know, a, a, a you know, mythical and, and a bit of a fiction, but also, you know, is just the product of a different historical uh, moment and is not really applicable anymore. The, you know, the uh, our contributions to peacekeeping um, and the whole enterprise of peacekeeping being just one example of that. Yeah. 
So this has been a wonderful walk through the terrible world of maple washing, uh, Luke. Any kind of final thoughts to to wrap it up? Um, I mean, I think you know it's interesting. We should have made this point during the uh, the ethical oil discussion, but it, it is interesting, like the extent to which you know we think about this as like a liberal phenomenon, and to a big in a big way it is. But um, like you know, conservatives do it too, and like I I don't actually think that had occurred to me. Um, until you, you know, that it hadn't occurred to me the extent to which is sort of a cross-partisan phenomenon until you brought up the thing about ethical oil. I'd never thought about uh, ethical oil in that way. So I think that's an important uh, friendly amendment to this, uh, to this whole, uh, this whole idea of maple washing. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for coming up with the thing in the first place. So uh, we're coming to the end of our time here. It's time to kind of plug your pluggables. How can people find you on the internet, follow along and support your work? Sure. Uh, yeah, Luke W. Savage on uh, on Twitter, um, and I do have a podcast as uh, as Duncan was kind enough to mention, um, Michael and us, and uh, you know it's kind of a, a you know lefty current affairs podcast, culture podcast, but um, we do watch a movie or show uh, almost every episode, um, often kind of probing the uh, kitsch, uh, you know, liberal or conservative kitsch of sort of the Bush era. Um, but you know, we've, uh, that was kind of the original concept of the show. We've since expanded and we, we talk about a lot of stuff now, including, uh, some films we actually like, it's a, a mix of stuff. Most recently, we actually listened to the Obama Bruce Springsteen podcast, um, and have some, uh, have some thoughts on that. So, well, God bless, <laughs> no, not the work for me, but, but I'm glad someone's listening to it. Well, lonely is the path of the Ronin. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, and folks, if you liked this podcast and you want to keep hearing uh, more podcasts like this, uh, there's a couple easy ways you can support us. You know, I don't, uh, I do this uh, every podcast, but I really do appreciate the people who uh, go out of their way, who go to the website and, you know, give us five, 10, $15 every month. There are just under 500 people around between 450 and 500. I got to pull out the number uh, who help keep this little independent media project going. And if you want to help us out, it's very easy. It's right in the show notes. There's a link there. And you can also just go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Uh, if you have any notes, or thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, things you think I uh, messed up on, I'm very easy to get a hold of. Uh, you can reach me by email at uh, duncank at progressalberta.ca or I'm also on Twitter and at Duncan Kinney. Uh, thanks so much to Cosmic Fanview Communist for the theme. Thanks again to uh, Luke Savage for coming on the show. Thank you for listening and goodbye.